Oh my God, you're back. You're listening to episode two of the Divorce Resource Guy podcast. Let's talk about divorce. It's time to get down to business. Let's go. Welcome to the Divorce Resource Guy podcast with Jason Lavoie, aka the Divorce Resource Guy, a former divorce attorney turned divorce coach, talking about all things divorce, including the good, bad, and the ugly from an attorney's point of view. Remember, you're not alone. And now, your host, Jason Lavoy. Hey guys, welcome to yet another episode of the Divorce Resource Guide podcast. Glad you're here. Hope you're finding them informative and interesting at the same time. We have a very special guest for you today. Her name is Amy Waterman. Let me tell you a little bit about her. She is the host of YourBrilliance.com. Her dating and relationship advice has been featured in over a dozen books and online courses, including the Marriage Saving Manual, Save My Marriage, today. She's been writing for women since 2005, focusing on the way in which the latest scientific research has transformed our understanding of love and relationships. We got a great conversation coming your way. Let's get right to it. Meet Amy Waterman. Hey, Amy. Welcome to the show. Hi, Jason. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to have you on I know it wasn't long ago I was on your podcast, and I don't think I even – I was starting mine yet, right? Had I start, told you yet? No. In fact, I think I encouraged you. I said, do it. Do it. Podcasts are great. You were. You were one of the big influences, so thank you so much. Yeah, well, I'm glad to see you're doing it, and uh, I think this is a topic that a lot of people need to know more about. There is so much – heartache and pain surrounding divorce, the end of marriages. Why does love end? Why do things have to be so bad? How can we make them better? And I think this is really important. I know. I know. There's a lot of stuff to cover. Uh, and so I'll have you back on in the future. We can do it all because I don't think we'll have time to do it all today. I don't want to overwhelm everybody. That sounds fantastic. But why don't you start off, tell everybody a little bit about yourself. Well, I started uh, way back in 2005, which is why I kind of call, call myself an old timer in the online dating and relationship advice industry, because I've been around since the dawning of the internet. Well, not quite. <laughs> but uh, back in 2005, I joined a, an internet uh, pr uh, book production company in New Zealand, actually, of all places. I was in New Zealand. Wow. And they got me on board to write books. And the very first book they needed done was a book called Save My Marriage Today. And so I worked with my co-author, Andrew Rustbatch, and we did the book. And that started off uh, a real career for me, learning more about dating and relationship advice, talking to counselors and therapists, interviewing tons of people, reading every single book out there. And since then, my perspective has changed. In the beginning of my career, I was very much influenced by the, the, I think it's called the National Institute for Marriage at Rutgers University, which was doing a lot of statistics on marriage breakdown and really encouraging people to whatever they do, stay married. You've got to stay married. Marriage is the foundation of our society. And since then, my perspective has changed. I think a lot of that comes from getting older, seeing a lot of my friends' relationships fail. A lot of the failures in the Hollywood community really affected me. You know, gosh, Angeline and Brad, how could they break up? Why is and it so high, the celebrity <laughs> divorce rate? Right? It's crazy, isn't it? The funny thing is, 
we actually have thought for a long time that the divorce rate is, is just obscene and it's going up. It's actually not. It's been going down now for quite some time. And one of the reasons, which is really quite interesting, is demographics. We have a lot of Hispanics moving in, a lot of, um, and they bring their Catholic culture with them. And the Catholics are much more marriage minded than, than a lot of the general Americans at large. So as our demographics change, we'll see the marriage, um, divorce rate changing because people be bringing their religious perspectives to it. I actually think that we are heading towards brighter days. I think people are much more informed. I think people have a lot more information about what to look forward to in a marriage. And I think people are more prepared. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I've seen, so many different statistics about divorce, and I really don't know what to believe anymore because we've all heard the you know statistic you know about half of marriages end in divorce, and I don't know if that's quite accurate. I think it's close, but um, I read somewhere and I forget where, but that the divorce rate is decreasing because people are staying married, but they're kind of staying married for the wrong reasons. They're staying married because a they can't afford to get divorced. Um, or, you know, they just don't want to deal with it. And, you know, have you had any insight into that? What's your feelings about that? One of the really interesting things about marriage is that marriage is actually a, a very much a historical construct. Marriage is really part of the patriarchy. Marriage is a way for men to make sure that their children are their children and to have a way to pass down their property. And so one of the interesting things today is the fact that we really have two ideas of marriage. One idea of marriage is a declaration of love and commitment. I love you so much. I want to be with you forever. But that's not actually what marriage is. Marriage is actually a legal contract. And what's very interesting, it took a friend of mine to point this out to me, what in normal life, if you don't get the full terms and conditions of a legal contract and you sign something that you haven't read, you're not bound to that contract. How can you sign your name to a legal contract that you were never provided all the terms and conditions? You didn't have to initial every page. Yet when you sign that marriage license, there are no terms and conditions anywhere. You're signing a legal document. Yeah without having any idea of the legal contract you're getting into. So one of the things I would like to see is I would like to see us separate the idea, the religious idea of marriage, the idea of marriage as love, and actually the legality of marriage as a legal contract that we sign and that we need to know what it requires of us and how to dissolve that contract. We need to have it all written out. And that's what I would like to see in the future. So that's interesting because... Obviously, I'm an attorney, so I think about things from a legal point of view, uh, unfortunately, all too often. (laughs) And when you talk about marriage, from a legal standpoint, when you want to talk about a contract before the marriage, for me, that's a prenuptial agreement. You know, and everybody decides, well, if the marriage doesn't work out, you know, these are going to be the distribution of assets. This is what you'll be entitled to and kind of spells it out. But it doesn't spell out. I don't know if it necessarily spells out everything. So you're talking about a really comprehensive document, but it's kind of like forecasting the doom and gloom that could be before the happy, let's get married, have the ceremony, you know, till death do us part type thing, right? 
Isn't that interesting? One of the really influential interviews I did way back when was with um, a woman who did premarital counseling at one of the, the local churches. And she said one of the most important parts of her job was to take couples who were in love and they had to go through this program before they could get married by the church and say, what are you going to do when you disagree? What are you going to do when you want to have kids and you don't? What are you going to do when she wants to move and you don't? What are you going to do when he wants to go back to school and there's no money? So what she did was she helped couples realize that this isn't about love. This is actually a partnership. And in many ways, it's similar to a business partnership. You've got to think everything through and be prepared for when conflict happens because conflict is going to happen, right? Absolutely going to happen. So in many ways, I see marriage as a similar thing. If you can't talk about conflict before you put those wedding rings on, you are setting yourself up for real big shock once you get married. So why not before you get married? Right. What are the hardest things we have to talk about? Maybe it's sex. It's probably money. Maybe it's different religions. Maybe it's different views on children. Can we have those conversations? Can we negotiate? Can we find some sort of compromise? And if we can't, what are we doing getting married? Right, right. I mean, doesn't it make sense? Um, that's exactly what I did too in my marriage. Not that I'm going to talk about you know my marriage per se, <laughs> but my wife and I are different religions. And we, before we got married, we both agreed that we should kind of attend uh, some counseling as far as, well, how, if we have children, are the children going to be raised? And because I said, I don't want to be married and then have this come up and then have us disagree. And then that's just going to be bad, bad, bad. Let's talk about this now, get it all out on the table. And, you know, we won't have to wor- kind of worry about it anymore. That's right. And what it does is it helps you learn to work together. Because isn't it great to learn how to work together before you're legally committed to each other so that you know, you know what, no matter what happens, we can deal with it. And then once you get married, you're fine, you're sorted. But why would you want to, like, one of the things that I really see is you're so much in love when you want to get married. And you want to get married because you believe that what's going to happen is It's going to solidify your happiness. The minute you put that wedding ring on, that peak of happiness you're feeling is protected and you're going to feel that way forever. So we see marriage not as a legal partnership, but as a way to preserve the love. It's not because what marriage does is it triggers something inside you that brings out all your childhood wounds and all of your baggage and you put that stuff on your partner and you can't help it. This is just the way we're built and everything explodes into a big mess. And that's fine. That's actually what's supposed to happen. Marriage is actually supposed to bring out the worst in both of you so that you can learn to work through those wounds and heal them and come out the other side. But when you think marriage is going to preserve that love you feel right now, you're deluding yourself. That isn't actually what's going to happen. And when that conflict hits, you're going to be shocked and you're going to think that you should have never gotten married. And that's not true. And I'm so glad you said that. And you kind of jumped the gun with what I was going to ask you because, you know, marriage as a big construct of, you know, happiness, but yet it is a partnership. It's a, I think that's a great thing you said about treating it like a business, you know? So the big question, because it sounds really a little pessimistic, you know, why would anybody want to get married? You know, so I want to ask you, do you think marriage is destined to fail? 
Well, I think that a lot of marriages will fail because people don't understand what marriage actually does to you on a psychological level. So one of the greatest things I think for me back in 2005, when I started diving into this research is I came across Dr. Harville Hendricks and his wife, Dr. Helen LaKelly Hunt, and they wrote a very famous book back, I think in the eighties, getting the love you want, uh, introducing the idea of imago therapy and imago therapy says, I think the truest thing that's ever been said about marriage. When we find somebody, somebody that, that may, we feel so powerfully about, we want to get married to, when we see that person, we think, I love this person because they're smart, they're witty, they treat me great, I feel wonderful around them, and we're compatible. And of course, that's why we're meant to be together and we're meant to get married. But when you look at all the people you've dated, you've probably dated people who are just as smart, just as funny, just as compatible. What is it about this person that makes you feel like this is the person you want to marry as opposed to someone you just are having a good time with? That's what imago therapy explains. Imago therapy says that the reason you want to marry that person is because on a very profound level, they feel familiar. It feels like you've always known this person. When you're with them, you have this feeling of being at home and it's very profound and it's very deep. Where does that come from? And this is the bit that we don't like to hear. It comes from the fact that what you're recognizing in that person is a constellation of traits associated with your parents or whoever raised you, the people who raised you. So you're actually recognizing and feeling so familiar like this person is like home because on a level you feel like you did when you were with your parents. Your inner child feels that way. So your inner child feels like this person can love you like your parents never could. With this person, life's going to be perfect, just like that small child thought that everything's going to be great with your parents. But what happens? Because they're like your parents, they're going to start hurting you in just the same way as your parents did. And so you have a choice then. You have an opportunity. With this person, you can heal all of those wounds from childhood. You can become whole. You can become you can become healed and you depend on that other person for it because this process is so messy. You have to be committed to a lifetime together because otherwise you'll run. Nobody wants to face the pain, right? So you've got to be committed forever so that you can face the fire together. So that's why marriage is important. The no exit clause means that you will stick with this person until you sort that stuff out. But yeah, it's work. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Marriage is work. And for anybody to think otherwise, um, they really need to dig deeper. Now, I, I love this imago therapy. I've actually never heard of that before. Uh, so this is really interesting to me. And for everybody listening, I will put in the show notes, it's I-M-A-G-O, and I'll, I'll give you a link to that and everything. But I just want to make sure I'm understanding this correctly, Amy. Are you saying that deep down inside, we're all secretly looking for our parents as a mate? It's funny, isn't it? When we're kids, so we all have inner childs, right? None of us are really grown up. Really, the, the less work you've done in yourself, the more your inner child's running the show. So this is why we see so many immature people. I know the women out there have dated immature guys. I know the guys out there have dated, you know, girl, little girly girls. We've all got that inner child in us. And the degree to which we allow the inner child to run our life, that's our degree of immaturity, right? So what we want to do is we want to make sure that inner child feels safe and protected so that we can be the adult running our life in a mature way. So the inner child went through childhood and it, 
every single child out there. There is not a single child who wasn't hurt in some profound ways by growing up because no parent is perfect. Children are insatiable bundles of need. They're demanding. They need everything. And we as parents will always let them down. We can't not let them down. That causes wounds. Now, this is a normal process. There is nothing wrong with parents hurting their children in the levels we're talking about. We're not blaming anybody. This is just what happens. And we're not talking physical hurt. We're just talking kind of like emotional, normal life stuff. I just want to make that clear, right? Yeah, normal life stuff. So you didn't give me that doll for Christmas or you told me off or, you know, whatever it is, there's a thousand small wounds when you're a kid. And what you realize is your parents who when you're a baby, you think your parents are just perfect and wonderful and all that's good. And the part of growing up is finding out that your parents are going to fail you. They're not perfect. They're human. And it's a huge disappointment. It's really hard to get over the disappointment for some people that their parents were only human. So what do we do? Our parents couldn't give us that love that we wanted. So we think that an opposite sex partner will. So what we're looking for in the romantic relationship is that love that will save us, the love that will make our lives better, the love that will make us taken care of, and it will all be perfect forevermore. But that's still immaturity, right? Because that other person's human, and they're going to hurt us. What is so important to understand is your partner is destined to hurt you, not because he or she is bad, but because we are all human and we all make mistakes and we all do stupid things. Your job is to learn then to heal those wounds together. I hurt you. What can I do to heal it? You hurt me. What can I do to heal it? You're you're both going to hurt each other. What are you going to do with that? And this is where you have the chance to heal, right? You're not going to heal by picking the perfect partner. You're going to heal by learning to give each other what each other needs. Doing the work, learning. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. First, I just want to say thank you for making me feel terrible as a father that I'm going to fail my child. Thank you. (laughs) I'm failing my daughter already. Don't worry. (laughs) (laughs) And I just want to let everybody know that my inner child does not run my life. It's just running this interview. Oh, (laughs) Inner kids, the inner child is great because the inner child is actually what also makes you a good dad because it what makes you able to relate to your kid. But what you want is you want your inner child to feel safe and loved and okay. And you want your kid to feel safe and loved and okay. So I think it's great to be in touch with your inner child. But just like I said, to take care of that inner child and not allow them to act out. Yes. No, I, I try to keep mine in check, especially when I'm in court. But, uh, you know, sometimes it's difficult. <laughs> so that, that, that's great. I mean, do you think, so the way we're attracted to the people that we date and our future spouses, is this all biological and kind of intangible? Or is there, is there a real science to this? It, the imago is this, the, so the imago, what the actual imago is, is this amorphous template that you have developed as a kid through, through merging the traits of your primary caregivers. And that's what you're actually attracted to, the imago. And everybody's is different because everybody's parents is different. So there's actually no way of really saying what your love template is. But one of the things you can see very easily is, is how many people you may know in your life who end up dating alcoholics over and over again because their dad was an alcoholic, who end up getting in that same relationship over and over again with the same exact person. And the reason this is happening is because they're being called to heal 
something about themselves. And instead of healing that, they're seeing the other person as, oh, you're an alcoholic, you're a bad person. If I leave you, I'm going to be okay. One of the great things about Imago therapy, I think, is it teaches us that leaving the relationship doesn't change anything because the relationship itself is the opportunity to heal and the conflict is the means through which we can heal each other. So if you leave, you can leave, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're not going to meet the next person and have the exact same problems. So you could say therapy can help. Therapy can help you look at some of this stuff, but really the crucible of transformation is intimate relationships with an intimate partner. Your spouse is the one where all your hope lies really. And it's through your problems that you will grow. It's not through the happiness and the peace. So celebrate it. Celebrate the fact that you're having problems. Say, right, this is great. We have a chance to do something amazing here. But this is where the new Amy takes over from the old Amy. The new Amy says that if you're stuck in an abusive relationship or in a relationship with somebody who doesn't want to do that work, that might be a signal that you need to do the work on your own. And maybe you need to get out because you can't do it with that person. It takes two, right? It Always. takes two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, I, and I love that you're kind of phrasing this. And if I say this wrong, then just, you know, correct me right away. But conflict can be good. You know, conflict, people run away from conflict. And I think people, that's why they run to get divorced, you know, too early uh, a lot of times because they want to, they just want that happiness. You know, when everything's going well, when everything's happy-go-lucky, then yeah, everybody's happy. And there's nothing to, you know, there's no conflict that to muck it up. But when there's that issue or those problems and people realize, wow, you know, I don't know if I can get through this. They don't even want to try. But the, the truth is, if you put in the work, what comes out the other end is something that's even much stronger and much more powerful than what you had before. Mm-hmm. It's our conflicts that make us as couples. Yeah. 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 No, I, I, I agree with that a hundred percent. And I try to keep that in mind every time I fight with my wife. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting. One of the most important things you can learn is actually is to work with each other's fighting styles because you're going to fight, but you can actually fight in ways that clear the air, that get the stuff off your chest, that don't hurt each other and that make progress. But unfortunately, a lot of couples, when they fight, they use it to dump their crap on each other. They use it to blame each other. They use it to put all their rage on the other person. And that's that's destructive. That's actually verbal abuse. And so I, I think there's a difference here between fighting because you disagree and you're trying to find a way through versus fighting because you're angry and you want that other person to pay for it. Right. One's vengeful and one is working through the issues. And mm-hmm. I think that's where the coaches and the therapists uh, and people like yourself, they come in very handy because you help people do that, right? You help people work through uh, the issues in a constructive, positive manner. That's right. Now, one of the things that I want to emphasize that I think you may not, uh, unfortunately, it's an issue with a lot of counseling. So one of the interesting things about marriage counseling is that not all marriage counselors see it as their job to save a marriage. They see it as their job to help two people decide what to do to move forward. And if they want to dissolve the marriage, that's fine. And if not, then that's fine too. And so when we think that 
by getting a coach in or by getting a marriage counselor in, it's all going to be, everything's going to be fine. Everybody's going to be on their best behavior. It's going to be great from now on. That's overstating what, what counselors and therapists can do. One of the worst things I think realizations for me as I've gotten older and experienced more of life is realizing that if you have one partner who sees the therapeutic relationship as a chance to finally, somebody's going to see how awful my spouse is, right? Finally, I'm going to get vindicated because the counselor is going to be on my side and, and side towards me and against it. That is probably a sign that there isn't much more you can do with your marriage. It's probably a sign that, you know, the counselor can be wonderful and they can be great. But really, when you've got one person whose attitude is, I'm right, and I want everybody to know what a nasty piece of work my spouse is, that marriage probably needs to end. And, and, yeah. And that's what's changed. I didn't always believe that. I still believe there is hope. Now I think that for the spouse staying in that marriage and working hard and trying to be kind and polite and constructive and getting beat back, I, I, I don't think that's fair anymore. Yeah. As a divorce attorney, I also, when, when a client would come in for that initial consultation, I would spend you know some considerable time asking them, have you gone to counseling? Have you tried to make it work? Because I hated seeing people get divorced. Just because that's what I did as an attorney didn't mean I wanted it to happen. So I would always like explore, well, what have you done to you know, work through your issues to try to make it work? And those, it goes back to it takes two. I, I think counseling can be so effective, but the person who you're describing who's looking for that validation from the coach or the therapist that they're right and the other person's wrong that's just a total wrong approach. Nothing is, gonna, nothing is going to get done that way. Um, the only way that person is going to be effective in some coaching or therapy situation is if they can come to the realization that it's not about blame. It's about how can we communicate and work through these things together as a partnership. Mm-hmm. And I'll add another piece to the puzzle, which I was shocked to find this out. Dr. John Gottman is one of the leading marriage researchers based at the University of Washington. He's extraordinary. I love his work. And he did this really interesting study that found that it's actually the husband's attitude that matters more than the wife's attitude. And it goes back to gender differences when we're young. When we're young, girls, if you look at a group of girls playing and a group of boys playing, the little girls are probably all sitting there taking turns. You know, their dolls are talking. Everybody's being nice. And the boys are over there running around in circles trying to hit each other and, you know, say rude things to each other. It's just kind of how that plays out. So once we become adults, we get we have grown women who've spent a lifetime being nice, pleasing other people, creating social harmony, and a group of boys who've grown up into men spending a lifetime trying to one-up other guys and never have any feelings and never come across as being a girl. So they don't have the skills when they get into marriage. So what they found then is when conflict happens, the women are much more likely to try and take their partner's thoughts and feelings into account. The men, on the other hand, probably due to gender differences from childhood, are much less likely to want to consider their their wife's thoughts and feelings because they feel like it's like, why would I want to have a woman have any control over me? They don't want to accept any influence from their wife. That just plays into all of those factors that make marriages fall apart. When people can't work together, when they refuse to consider each other's thoughts and feelings, when there's not much empathy, that's really when a marriage is ready 
to go its separate ways. So when women are lucky enough to find a man who has some degree of emotional intelligence, who wants to learn, who wants to understand how his behavior affects her, that is probably the clearest sign that you have the best shot of anyone at having a marriage that lasts. It's his attitude. Right. But how do you, what separates, because from what it sounds like, you know, the little girls when they're playing when they're young versus the little boys who are running around and kind of wrestling with each other, right? They're, they're more, much boys are much more physical with each other than girls most of the time. Is that a, is that a socialization thing? Is that a biological thing? Because you do have men who, you know, have emotional intelligence, who are sensitive, who are kind of in touch and understand. So, you know, how come they had it? How come the man who has that, where did he get it from versus the, the uh, other man who doesn't have that? Yeah, well, I think great parenting is, is very important. I think the way we raise our kids. There's a wonderful book by Dr. Luann Brizendine. It came out a while back now called The Female Brain, and she later released a sequel called The Male Brain. And she argues that a lot of these differences have to do with the way, the, the minute differences in the way our brains are wired. That really, there, there were so many parents, maybe 20 years ago, who said, I'm going to raise gender-neutral children, I'm going to give dolls to my son, and I'm going to give trucks to my girl. And they end up swapping the toys or the girl ends up putting the truck in a pram and, you know, treating it like a little baby. So there's, there's very much built-in differences. There's very much. And these go back, if you want to do the, the anthropology route, when you think about our ancestors way back in the dawn of time, you had the women all in a group, probably going out, gathering together. They had lots of time to talk. So there they are, they're chattering, they're gathering berries or they're tanning leather or they're looking after the children. They need social harmony because they're all together. They're the ones that are looking after the the campsite. Then you've got the men. They're out there hunting, I don't know, wildebeest, whatever. (laughs) You have to be silent, right? Because if anybody speaks, that that animal is going to find them. They've got to be decisive and ready for violent action. So they are out there being typical men. They're not talking. They're not expressing their feelings. Their aim is one goal and one goal only to get that wildebeest. Whereas here the women are la 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 chatting, having a great time at the village. Everybody's got to be in peace and social harmony. So we can see that that these these actually these these social traits have actually developed over millennia. And here we are today, men and women who are struggling to create relationships because now we're nuclear families. Maybe we wouldn't have this issue if we were all still living in these villages and these communities, but we've got one guy and one girl in a house and they got to be a team. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. It's, it's, it's almost like it today's, today's society and the way we live forces us to kind of go against the grain from more, the way we're hotwired. Mm-hmm. And for men, it's harder. It is harder for men, but here's the thing. There is so many, there are so many resources out there. There's so much information. There's so much co- you know, coaching opportunities. Men don't have to say, well, I'm a guy, so I can't talk about my feelings. Maybe they could have got away with that 20 years ago, but now, well, that's great. Okay, you don't know how to talk about your feelings. Let's do a workshop. You know, there's lots of opportunities. And it doesn't mean he's sacrificing his masculinity, that he's less of a man because He's trying to learn this stuff. He can still be a man, but he can be a man in a marriage that will last forever. And surely that's worth it. Absolutely. And, and I agree 100% with that. 
I, I can't help but feel though that amongst men, and I'm one of them, although I don't necessarily feel this way at all, but I think they, there's still this sense of taboo with women too, but definitely men, this taboo of seeking out help for something because it makes you look weak. And I, I feel like that's what they think, even though that might not be actually expressed. You know, if you ask somebody for help, then that means you are not doing something you're supposed to be doing. And, you know, as a man, you kind of failed. I, I can't help but feel that that's like an overriding, I don't know what you want to call it, but like this yeah. cloud uh, yeah. over, over men. But I, I've seen it with women too, but definitely I think more with men. Absolutely. There's so many great books that are coming out now, kind of unpicking the the toxic ideas that have passed down with this idea of masculinity. And Lewis Howes had the masks of masculinity. There's That just came out. There's so many good books. So if a man thinks, you know what? I'm tired of having to be the man. I just want to be me. Go and look at the books out there. One of the really exciting things I think that's happened recently is how more and more uh, celebrity and, and athletes are coming out talking about depression in men and saying, hey, you know what? You can be a man. You can have it all. You can be tough. And you can still have mental health issues. So we got to change. And also, we women have a role to play, and that is to support men in their vulnerability. And I know women haven't always done this. Women, for whatever reason, are often attracted to the strong, silent type who doesn't need any help. Well, we as women can make it easier for our guys to be vulnerable. Like one of the things we can do, pretty easy thing for women, is to stop talking so much. You know how many couples, the woman goes, blah, 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 (laughs) and he's just sitting there listening, blah, 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 blah. Well, as a woman, all you have to do is just stop talking. Right? What do you think? Give him all the time in the world he needs to talk. So we can do stuff too. We women can help. It's not just the man's job. Well, it kind of goes back to the whole it takes two, right? Um, That really rings true that, you know, you know, a marriage is not going to work just on one side with one spouse working. It really is a partnership. It takes two. Like you said, there's tons of resources out there. But speaking of marriage and that whole idea of, you know, I'm glad that we kind of came to the conclusion that it's not destined to fail. But what are some of the main predictors or big red flags that you see that a marriage may be failing? Going back to Dr. John Gottman, he's done some of the most well-received research on this. And he says there's four four key traits. And if you see one of these, uh-oh. If you see several of these, uh-oh. If you see all of them, well, you know, you, you need drastic intervention. He calls them the four horsemen after the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Basically, the apocalypse is coming. So the four, the four horsemen, the four factors are contempt, stonewalling, defensiveness, and criticism. And I can say I've been in a relationship where all four horsemen were around and that relationship failed spectacularly. These are these factors really, really predicted. And it's also sometimes hard for us to see if we're doing it. So you may think, ah, I can see my partner's doing these things. You may not see that you're doing it too. So looking at those contempt, I would say is the biggest. Contempt is when you don't respect your partner. You roll your eyes at them, right? So if you see your partner rolling their eyes at you, ooh, you might need to to get some help because that's a big sign. When you don't respect each other, what's left? How can you love someone you don't respect? Right. It doesn't work that way. No. 
No. So if your partner tells you that you disgust him, you, you're just disgusting. You, oh, you always do, the, bleh, you know, that's, if he has contempt for you, man, you've got a long road ahead or you need to leave the relationship. That's a big one. Yeah. Stonewalling is where you've got issues, right? We, you need to make a decision. You've got a conflict, right? We need to work this out. I'm not talking to you about it. I'm not talking to you about it. Why would I talk to you? You always, you're going to do what you want anyway. I'm not talking to you about it. <laughs> this is a, a common male one. Men love to stonewall, right? <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> so we talked about this before. With conflict, you have to sort through it. You have to see it as an opportunity to move forward. But when all conflict is faced with, I'm not going to talk about it. Or we can do this too. When we see a problem, I'm just going to pretend that isn't happening. I'm just going to pretend it's not happening, right? Because maybe if I stick my head under the carpet, it'll all go away and I won't have to do anything, right? So we can't do that with our marriages. We've got to have conflict out in the open. We've got to work through it. Defensiveness, this is both genders, sadly. But again, men slightly more than women. But defensiveness is when someone comes to you and says, right, um, I don't like it when you do that. And you say, well, I don't do that. Well, you do it worse than I do. Right. <laughs> Um, it's like the guards go right up. Yeah. How dare you criticize me? How dare you come to me complaining about this when you do X, Y, Z and all this other stuff? Oh, (laughs) deep breath. (laughs) And then the final one, I think maybe we'll say women do this more than men. Criticism. You always leave your dirty towels on the floor and I am sick and tired about how lazy you are. You're so lazy. You know, your mother didn't raise you. I don't know what it is. (laughs) Were that, were that also uh, leaving the lights on before, in that category? Probably, yeah. The toilet roll being under instead of over, that sort of. <laughs> yeah. So one of the, the problems, so what makes this, rather than just saying, honey, would you please leave the toilet roll over rather than under, the difference between that and criticism is criticism is when you say, this is a permanent trait about your partner that shows what a failure he or she is. So it's one thing to say, you know, honey, please pick up the towel and put it in the laundry basket. Or you can say, honey, I noticed a pattern of you not picking up your towel and putting it in the laundry basket. That's not criticism. And that shouldn't be met with defensiveness. That's conflict and that can be worked through. Right. Criticism is where you say, you are lazy. You always do this. You never care about me. It's when you're saying this is, this is part of your partner's character. And not a good thing either. It's part of your partner's failings as a person. That's criticism. Yeah, it's almost you're saying it with malice as opposed to saying, you know, I think this is an issue we just need to kind of just talk about. Yeah. And so sometimes men will come back and say, well, you, you're always criticizing me. Nothing I do is ever good enough for you. And, uh, and, and then you have to look at yourself. You say, was I criticizing or was I simply talking about conflict? Because otherwise he might be stonewalling, right? He might be refusing mm-hmm. to, to address the issue. Okay. The issue is towels really do better in the laundry basket than on the floor. And so you've <laughs> got to negotiate those things together. Right. And, and these are things living together and at the beginning of a marriage, learning about each other, all normal things in life. Um, but if they're not addressed in a healthy manner, then every conflict, it's going to just like compound. And right, I think you got to learn early on how to deal with conflict. Otherwise, it kind of snowballs. 
Mm -hmm. So there's one really interesting factor that's the opposite of marriage breakdown. And it's the factor that's going to give you the most hope, right? Well, we had one, we had the husband's attitude. If your husband really wants to be a better man and wants to learn and is committed to listening to your thoughts and feelings and taking those into account, that's, that's great. You got such a good chance there, but there's another factor. And again, there's been really interesting research on this. If there is kindness in your marriage, you guys got a great shot. So if you can't do anything else, you know, your marriage, there's so many conflicts, there's so many problems, you don't know how you're going to resolve them. If you can do one thing, you've got hope. And that thing is if you can try to be kind to each other. Isn't that funny, right? This is the person you love. Why wouldn't you be kind to them? But what happens is love is so close to hate. We treat the people we love worse than anyone. And that's Why is that? Because we love them? I think it's because, and I've written about this before, because once, I don't know if you've noticed this pattern, but there's a pattern where couples date and they're blissfully happy and he treats her like a queen, she treats him like a king. They get married, boom. Suddenly they take each other for granted. They treat each other like dirt. The difference is before, you were, you were lovers. Now you're family. Right. And so what happens is you get triggered back from your family of origin. How did your family treat each other? Chances are that's going to be how you're treating your spouse. You might treat your spouse like um, your mother treated your father or your father treated your mother. He might treat you, you know, the opposite way. So what's happening is family patterns are getting triggered. And those patterns are so powerful. We can't help how we were raised in our family of origin. And so we often then we get to be adults and we think, right, I'm not going to treat anyone the way I was treated in my family. But when you get married, there's something really powerful that happens. Those old family patterns get triggered. And sometimes you don't even feel like you can control them. You find words that you heard your mother say coming out of your voice. And this also <laughs> happens with parenthood. <laughs> I'm turning into my dad. <laughs> You do. You do. And so family, I don't know if your family treated each other like gold. My family didn't. My family treated each other like probably not as good as we would treat strangers off the street. We just didn't. Let me put it this way. I don't know any family that was the Brady Bunch. Um, Everybody has their issues and their problems. And, you know, the grass always seems greener on the other side, but everybody has their own conflict. Um, Mm -hmm. so mine included and probably why I do what I do today. That's right. And when we're parents, one of the great things I love about being parents is you have an opportunity to program your child from scratch. And so you become hyper-conscious of everything you say and everything you do, you know, all those bad words that would slip out of your mouth. You're like, Oh man, maybe I better stop that. (laughs) So one of the things I've loved doing as a parent is creating an extraordinarily respectful family environment. I first actually came across this idea when I was in South America and I was speaking Spanish at the time. And in Spanish, there's two verbs or there's two uh, versions of the word you. There's the word you that you would say you to somebody you respect, you to somebody who's, who's got greater social status. And then there's an informal you that you use among your friends. People are like kids, people who aren't, you know, just not very important. And so uh, the man I was working with, was with his children and he's told his daughter, you go over and and do this thing. 
And I was like, wait a second. He used the really respectful you to his daughter. I thought you were supposed to use the informal you around kids. And, you know, I didn't know my Spanish. So after that, I said, wait, why did you do that? Like, I thought this form of you was to be used with kids. And he's like, ah, no. He said, because how I address my children is how they will address other people. They're learning how to use language from me. So if I use the respectful version of you around them, they are then going to treat other people respectfully. Of course, it didn't happen. When the kids talk to me, they use the informal. <laughs> so I guess maybe it didn't, didn't work that well. But I was like, wow, wouldn't it that be interesting sense. if we talked to our children as though they were our betters, as though they were people we really, really needed to respect? Like what would happen, for example? Let's say you go to work one day and something's bad's gone wrong at the office and your boss explodes. How would you, how would you act towards your boss? Right? Okay. Now you're at home. Something's gone wrong. Maybe the TV has broken. Your child goes into a tantrum. How would you treat your child? Well, chances are you would treat your boss in a tantrum different from your child having a tantrum, even though they're both having tantrums. Why? Well, because you respect your boss, but not all parents respect their children in that way. You think, oh, it's my kid. You know, they just can't behave, can't they? So, So what would happen then if we said, right, when my child has a tantrum, I'm going to treat that respectfully. I'm going to think, I wonder why this is happening. I wonder if my child's been overstimulated. I wonder if uh, they have been watching TV for too long. And I wonder if I could be really calm and I could use my calm presence to calm down my child and return them to center rather than saying, gosh, these kids, they're so impulsive. They have no self-discipline. It's just a TV. What's wrong with my child? This sort of stuff is also a great foundation for marriage. One of the greatest things about being a parent is I think it teaches you how to be a better partner. Because if you have to be that respectful to your child, you suddenly start thinking, well, maybe I'm not as respectful to my partner as I think I am. Right. It could be a, a, an eye-opener. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So many great nuggets here, Amy. We probably talk for hours. I think at the end of the day, marriage is hopefully going to be something people will want to have. And once they're in, will want to work to preserve um, because it's worth it, right? At the end of the day, it can be worth it. As long as you've got two people on board. Yeah. And what I want to always say is if you have a partner who's displaying contempt towards you, who won't address issues, who gets defensive if you try and bring anything up, and who really thinks you're a nasty piece of work, then I would take steps to either get some sort of intervention, you know, go to counseling, ask a pastor, or look at how you might extricate yourself from that because that's not going to work. You've both got to try. You've both got to be working at it. Absolutely. And, and you deserve to be happy, you know, and mm-hmm. everybody deserves to be happy. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons – People fall in love and want to get married in the first place is to be happy and and share life with somebody else who wants to share it back. So if you're not in that type of relationship or you've seen one of these big red flags that Amy has talked about, um, then those are indicators that if you're not already, then you need to really address it. Yeah. Right. 
Thank you so much, Amy, for coming on. I, this was great. I hope everybody found this discussion really valuable. Let everybody know where they can find you. So come on over to yourbrilliance.org slash marriage, and we'll give you an article kind of summarizing some of my, my insights into marriage, and you can find some of my books, uh, including the old classic Save My Marriage Today from 2005, including my latest book, which is about how to restore some happiness to your life, which is, can be kind of important when, when marriages aren't going so well. So please come on over again. It's yourbrilliance.org slash marriage. And come check us out. Awesome, everybody. And again, I'll put that in the show notes. If you're listening and you can't write it down, uh, don't worry about it. Amy Waterman, thank you so much for coming on the Divorce Resource Guide podcast. And hopefully we can do this again soon. I would love to. Thank you so much, Jason. And thank you all out there for listening. Okay. How was that? Did you like that? I did. It was a lot of fun. I hope you enjoyed it. Do me a favor. If you did, Go to iTunes, subscribe to the podcast so you get new episodes automatically when they come out, rate the show, review it, spread the word. In the meantime, all I'm going to ask you to do is be strong, act confident, and stay positive. As always, I'm Jason Lavoie, a.k.a. The Divorce Resource Guy, and I'll be seeing you soon.